Hey, it's Temporary Fandoms Episode 8, but more importantly, it's David Bowie Part 3, the final instalment of our journey through the complete discography of David Bowie. In this episode, we'll pretend that Tin Machine never happened and cover the years from 1993 through to 2016. If you haven't heard Parts 1 and 2 yet, we're nothing if not completists, and so we urge you to go and find those by searching Temporary Fandoms or visiting our hosts, Beat Rehab, at beat.rehab slash tempfans. If you are new here, allow me to explain what Temporary Fandoms is all about. We are not a listicle. We are not the Bowie albums ranked or 10 Bowie albums you should listen to. We're the whole shebang. We listen to the whole lot, and we sort of hope that you will too. But when we were making the transition from a Facebook group to a podcast, we had to learn that making you listen to the complete discography as part of the actual podcast was, let's say, a little impractical. Although we did try. Nevertheless, we're about the deep dive, so our episodes are long and our coverage is wide. Stick us on while you're cleaning the oven or something. You're bound to learn a thing or two. And if you want to stick your oar in, head over to facebook.com slash groups slash tempfans. We've got a lot of records to listen to, so I won't keep you longer. Join us and our wonderful contributors as we listen to David Bowie, Part 3. Hello, uh, I'm Ewan. And I'm Nick. Uh, Welcome to part three of Bowie on Temporary Fandoms. Um, I've I've lost track with what full episode it is now. Episode eight. Episode eight, thank you. Um, Slightly excited as I'm speaking, the first episode got to a whole 100 listeners. Um, So hopefully we'll be snowballing a little bit from that. I'm not going to go too much into details about where we are. You know the the deal by now. We're on beat.rehab slash tempfans. There's a Spotify playlist, uh, which also has the podcast on there. However, um, if you don't have Spotify premium, you will need to listen to that on a laptop so it doesn't shuffle about. Um, We're going to stop talking in a bit about Bowie, 90s through noughties. Um, again, it's quite a long pod, so don't feel you need to rush through everything. Stop, go and listen to music and take your time. Um, to Joining us today are Jonathan Fisher and Emma McDermott. Okay, <laughs> I'm going to edit out the bit where I go, did I get your name right? Um, <laughs> and first of all, so Jonathan, how are you doing and what Bowie do you have for us? I am very well, and I am doing the 19th Bowie. Uh, and Emma, how are you? And uh, what Bowie do you have? I'm well, thank you. Um, I'm covering from Heathen 2002 through to Blackstar 2016. Okay, thank you very much. So we're going to keep this short as normal. Uh, next thing you're going to hear will be Jonathan talking through the 90s, and then uh, you'll hear me again as we come back for the the last group chat about Bowie um, in a bit. Oh, incidentally, the music you're going to hear was written by Jonathan. So that's nice. The music you hear right about now. At the beginning of the 1990s in 1990 itself, Bowie meets supermodel Iman. She's from Somalia and they fall madly in love. In fact, they get married in 92. 
and are then married right up until his death. Unfortunately, though, for Bowie, he still has one more Tin Machine album to get through in 1991's Tin Machine 2. We're not talking about that. One thing we will talk about, though, is Reeve Gabrels. Gabrels? Gabrels. He's the guitarist Bowie takes away from the whole Tim Machine debacle stroke project. He will stay on for the yeah, rest of the 90s. Look at yours, eh? His first actual album of the 90s, though, is Black Tie, White Noise from 1993. Bowie reuniting with Niall Rogers, who we last saw on Let's Dance. It's not a bad album. It's not a great album. It's okay. Jump, they say, is good. It's a good single, but mm, yes, not loads else to say about that one, really. More of interest in 93, or more interest to me in 93, is Bowie's Butter of Suburbia soundtrack from the Hanif Karishi novel turned into a series. It's good. It's a good soundtrack. It's very mixed. Few sort of odd experiments and things that he tries there, but there are a handful of really good songs. Well, three really good songs. There's the title track, which is a great song, great single, very little heard nowadays. I think I don't think it's on any hits albums or anything, but it's really good. Dead against it, I really like. And we also get the first rendition of "Strangers When We Meet," which is a cracking song and then we'll also appear on his next album. <laughs> 1995's One Outside. So Bowie had met up with Eno again at his wedding to Iman in 92. They undoubtedly hit it off again. It had been a long time, hell of a long time, since the 70s. And the classic Bowie albums, classic Eno Bowie albums, they decide to try something again. And I think it'd been a long time since he'd really been experimental. I think we saw a little bit of that on the Buddha of Suburbia. And I think that pointed the way forward. So they reconvened in 1994, again with Reeves Gabrels on guitar and Mike Garson on piano. They'd played on the last couple of albums as well. Garson had last played on the Young Americans album in 75, recording-wise, before the 90s. So it was great to have him back. And his piano playing really shines on outside for me. It's kind of impressionistic, avant-garde, improvised. He never played the same thing twice. But it sounds great. It's perfect for this album. It really is. It's a concept album. Oh, yes. Just what we want today. The basic concept is um, murder as art. This includes segues with Bowie putting on um, voices, playing the characters. It's great. I love those bits. I know that people are quite divided over this album. I can see why, really. I can see why. Probably not for everyone. It's, in, it's got um, elements of industrial. He plays with Nine Inch Nails um, on the tour this album. He's also cutting up lyrics, listen to Hello Space Boy. He's back with all that stuff, all the good stuff. But I guess the thing here is there is great songs again on this album, really interesting songs and great songs. 
Outside itself is a great song. I've not been to Oxford Town. It's quite a poppy song, surprisingly. There are quite poppy songs on here. It's good. No Control is really good. We Prick You. And um, probably my favourite, Through These Architect's Eyes. It's a great piece of 90s, arty, rocky, bowie stuff. Um, very tuneful. It's just really good. And he also, some, oddly, I guess, but I can see why, he, he adds um, Strangers When We Meet at the very end from Buddha of Suburbia. I can see why he did that, because it's a great, great song. It's an odd choice at the end, but it ends on quite a light note after such a dark, impenetrable, all right, yeah, ridiculous album. It is quite ridiculous. But, yeah, it's a great way to end Strangers When We Meet. You could end any album with that for me. I'm good. So that leads us to 1997's Earthling. We get the first warning shots from this album with um, Little Wonder, the single in 97, which I remember really loving when it came out. It's a great little single. And Bowie described it as like um, a rebirth of The Laughing Gnome from his early singles, um, which I always found hilarious. I, I thought that's great. It's a funny thing. It's a, a great song. Clunky sort of drum and bass thing. It works though for me and I've really enjoyed it. Unfortunately though, the album does not live up to this at all. The only interesting sort of cut up drum and bassiness of Little Wonder is replaced by largely straight ahead dance rock, um, which sounds very middle-aged and flabby to me. It's not great. Telling Lies is quite good. That's an all right, another all right single from there. Overall, it's, a, it's not a great album and quite a disappointment from one outside to me. He starts to pull his punches from the experiments of that album, which I always regretted. I always thought he could have done more with that, even in a poppier vein. Like Little Wonder is that. It's like a pop, sort of cut-up version of the one outside stuff. And he, there, there could have been more of that for me. So that leads us nicely onto his next album, 1999's Hours. Um, so at the end of the decade, Bowie's looking back over his life to very little effect. Oh, it's dull. It's really boring, beigey. Best of an album, it's not good. And it could have been good. I feel it really could have been good. Um, throughout 98, 99, Bowie and Gabrels were working on the soundtrack to a video game called Omicron the Nomad Soul um, which and two of those tracks appear on the single Thursday's Child on the B-side including We Shall Go to Town both of these B-sides are better than anything on the album for me and this is how we end up losing get this Reeves Gabrels because of his unhappiness with Bowie to leave these off the album. Blimey. Gabriel's ditches Bowie. What's this madness? But yeah, that's how we lose him. The main aspect about this album, though, is it seems to take him back to the more classic songwriting mode of the early 70s and beyond, actually. He seems to, be for the first time, be looking back. This is what sets him up pretty much for the rest of his career 
this is the first show of that really on ours. But for me, it's probably his worst album. But I think it takes him to some interesting places hereafter. For David Bowie's 22nd studio album, Heathen, he was reunited with producer Tony Visconti for the first time since 1980's Scary Monsters. Released in June 2002, it became Bowie's most acclaimed album in years. Enthusiastically received by critics and fans, it was considered to be a comeback in the US and reached number five in the UK charts. It was toured in 2002 and Bowie himself said, I would definitely put Heathen up there with some of the better work that I've done. Several of the songs started Life on Toy, an album Bowie made around 2001, which was never officially released but eventually leaked on the web in 2011. Whilst Toy had a retro spirit, Heathen was as much about the present as the past. Described by Bowie as a collection of serious songs to be sung, the album came at a time when he'd recently lost his mother, who passed away in 2001. He was also grappling with the state of the world, and perhaps as the title suggests, his own spirituality. Guitarist Reeve Grabrells, who Bowie had performed with for the past 10 years, may have jumped ship after the Hours album, but he then sees the return of a number of other familiar collaborators. Bowie regular Carlos Saloma returned on guitar for the first time since 1995's Outside, and Sterling Campbell returned on drums. Bowie played keyboards, guitar, saxophone and stylophone, with producer Visconti on bass, string arrangements, guitar and backing vocals. Several guest musicians feature too. Work started on the album well before the 9-11 attack in 2001 on New York's Twin Towers. But with recording ongoing and Heathen released exactly nine months later, it did cast its shadow on the concept. Heathen's opening track, Sunday, is haunting, otherworldly and wouldn't sound out of place on Bowie's final album, Blackstar. But that's a long way off yet. It's an interesting choice to start the album with. Understated, sober and majestic, perhaps the perfect track to listen to at dawn or dusk. Towards the end it kicks up as the harmonies rise and then suddenly it fades out, leaving the listener wanting more. While Sunday could easily be seen as a reaction to the attack on Bowie's home city, New York, it was actually written much earlier on one of the first tracks recorded for the album. But as Bowie said, it was quite spine-tingling to realise how close those lyrics came, reflecting, there are some key words in there which really freak me out. Off Bowie's original songs for Heathen, of which there are nine, Slow Burn earned him a Grammy nomination for Best Rock Male Vocal Performance. Described by him as moody and sad with a strong R&B feel, it was also Bowie's favourite track from Heathen and features the Who's Pete Townsend on guitar, 22 years after he played on Because You're Young for the Scary Monsters album. There's also Slip Away, which features another guest appearance, this time from King Crimson's Tony Levin on Fretless Bass. The origins for the track lie with The Uncle Floyd Show, a TV series aired in New York and New Jersey in the 70s and 80s. A low-budget puppet show which John Lennon had introduced Bowie to. He originally wrote his tribute to the show under the title Uncle Floyd. Afraid was another track originally written for Toy. Strangely optimistic in spite of its title, it effectively combines driving guitars and strings. I Would Be Your Slave is a beautiful, minimalist track about love and insecurity that has a powerful sense of vulnerability. 5.15 The Angels Have Gone perhaps reflects the general feeling of anxiety Bowie had felt in America for some years. 
Everybody Says Hi is said to be in part inspired by the death of Bowie's father way back in 1969. Although apparently Reeve Grabrells thought David wrote it for him. For me, it has a great sense of warmth and humour. It's like the audio equivalent of a big bear hug. And the line, and your big fat dog right at the end, makes me smile every time. A Better Future, which Bowie described as a simple song, is said to be written for his daughter. It skips along and is an interesting combination of melancholic with a sunny disposition. Its repeated refrain, I demand a better future, is both empowering and hopeful. The album closes with Heathen the Rays, perhaps the bleakest track, and another which could perhaps be seen as a signpost to Blackstar, which Bowie would deliver 14 years later under very different circumstances. Written by him alone in the studio, it was an emotional experience for him. Talking about the track, Bowie said, Heathen is about knowing you're dying, it's a dialogue between man and life itself. So what else does Heathen have to offer? There's three covers sprinkled through the album, including a pounding rendition of Pixie's Cactus from 1988's Surfer Rosa. Energetic and angular, it's almost like a handbrake turn after the opening track Sunday. It also features Bowie on all instruments except bass and boasts his only recorded drum performance. Black Francis was clearly impressed. He said it's like having Jesus Christ come out of the clouds and say, you have done well, my son. It doesn't get any bigger than that. A cover of I've Been Waiting For You from Neil Young's 1969 self-titled album also features. Also a fairly muscular interpretation with less of the whimsy of Young's original vocal. The track features Dave Grohl guesting on guitar. The third and final cover on Heathen is a version of I Took a Trip on a Gemini Spaceship by Norman Carl O'Dam, aka the legendary Stardust Cowboy, whose name helped to inspire the moniker for one of Bowie's most iconic characters, Ziggy Stardust, in 1972. As if to repay the favour, he decided to cover Legendary's 1968 song after learning that the outsider artist had fallen on hard times, knowing the royalties would benefit him. In 2003, Bowie said Heathen was written as a deeply questioning album, with one foot astride that awful event in September, making it quite a traumatic album to finish. There's a lot to reflect on and the result is an album he was rightly proud of. Heathen was a hugely successful album for David Bowie, but before critics and fans had a chance to heap praise on its 2002 release, he was back in the studio working on new material for its successor. Swiftly released the following year in 2003, reality saw 56-year-old David in vibrant and immediate form, as he delivered a relaxed and diverse album, which he and his band could replicate with ease on stage. Produced by Bowie and Tony Visconti, reality was recorded at Philip Glass's Looking Glass Studios on Broadway, close to David's home. A trio of guitarists, Jerry Leonard, Earl Slick and David Torn, were joined by Mark Platy on bass, Sterling Campbell on drums, Mike Garson on piano, with Bowie and Visconti playing multiple instruments again. Reality's first track and first single, New Colour Star, perhaps alludes to the 9-11 attacks with its line, See the Great White Scar, over Battery Park but it has a driving impetus behind it, with Bowie singing, I've got a better way, and with the repeated phrase, I'm ready, I'm ready, for me it holds some optimism. Next he launches into a pacey cover of Jonathan Richmond's 1972 song, Pablo Picasso. First seen on the Modern Lovers album in 1976, Bowie's bold cover is less laid back and more urgent than Richmond's original. 
Never Get Old became reality's second single and sees Bowie playing with the cliché of the rock star who never grows old. I think about personal history, he sings, and muses about living till the end of time. The haunting track The Loneliest Guy sees a big shift in mood. Mournful, it speaks of all the pages that have turned and all the lessons left unlearned. Almost in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol territory, it looks back at what could have been and a fate escaped. Looking for Water lifts the pace again and with its stomping marching beat, it's inspired by a cartoon strip where a lost man in a desert stumbles across an oasis only to find it's an oil field. Some have interpreted it as a nod to Bowie's character from The Man He Fell to Earth. She'll Drive the Big Car explores the married life of a former free spirit and has wonderful harmonies from Gail Ann Dorsey and Catherine Russell, as well as a flash of harmonica. Days, again, looks back in a reflective manner, said to be a nod to the songwriting of Ray Davis of the Kinks, who Bowie much admired. It recognises former shortcomings of the narrator, with the line, All I've done, I've done for me. All you gave, you gave for free. I gave nothing in return, and there's little left of me. It sings. Full Dog Bombs the Moon returns to politics of the time around the US response to the 9-11 attacks, the Iraq War, and how wealth corrupts. Try Some Buy Some is a cover of George Harrison's 1971 song. It dovetails nicely with Days. Bowie said of the recording, We were pretty true to the original arrangement, but the overall atmosphere is somewhat different. The title track, Reality, brings a change of pace. As Bowie looks back on his glory days, perhaps, and seems to laugh at life's twists and turns. I've been right, I've been wrong, he sings. Now I'm back to where I started from. Never looked over reality's shoulder, he reflects. The final track, Bring Me the Disco King, is one he first attempted for Black Tie White Noise, and then again for the Earthling album. He finally nailed it for inclusion on reality by stripping it down completely with Mike Garson on piano. It works perfectly on a jazz tip, and alongside reality's reflection on ageing as well. It stands out, but also blends perfectly with the album's themes. Originally planned as a seven-month tour, Bowie took the album on the road in 2003 and 2004. The A Reality tour actually started in October 2003 and ran until June of the following year. It was a tour that changed Bowie's life forever. Crossing Europe and visiting the UK, Ireland, America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, Japan, Hong Kong, it started in Denmark and crossed four continents, reaching 24 countries in 10 months, including some Bowie hadn't toured to since 1987's Glass Spider Tour. Guitarist Earl Slick said it was the happiest he'd ever seen Bowie in 42 years that he'd spent working with him. This was Bowie's first major tour since 1995's Outside Tour. And with over 110 shows, it was the longest of his career. It wasn't a theatrical show this time. The focus was intentionally on the musicians on stage. Recalling the tour dates, the band remembered seeing the real David, his sense of humour, his seemingly youthful energy and his incredible connection to the audience. The set lift spanned Bowie's 30-plus years in the music business, with the band rehearsing 60 songs in preparation. During the 111th show of the tour in Prague on 23rd June, Bowie became unwell. He managed to finish the performance and insisted on playing the full set in Germany two days later at the Hurricane Festival. He was determined not to let anyone down, but he was taken away in an ambulance at the end of that gig. Bowie had suffered a mild heart attack and took time off afterwards unsure if he'd ever record or tour again.
He actually retired from performing live in 2006, making A Reality his final tour. Bowie's recording career, however, endured. After a seven-year hiatus, regular members of Bowie's band, including guitarist Earl Slick, Gary Leonard, bassist Gail Ann Dorsey and drummers Zachary Olford and Sterling Campbell were contacted. They were sworn to secrecy and asked to sign NDAs. Bowie was stepping back into the recording studio to start work on a new album. This time round, days would be shorter. Instead of working to the point of exhaustion as he had sometimes in the past, the band would down tours at 6pm, returning the following day to pick up where they'd left off. Codenamed The Table was underway. In an age when everybody knows everyone else's business, they managed to pull off an impossible task and keep the album's production a secret throughout its recording sessions in New York between May 2011 and February 2013. Once again produced by Tony Visconti, possible names muted for the album, Where Love Is Lost and Where Are We Now? Bowie's first new album in 10 years, the next day was announced to the world on his 66th birthday on 8th January 2013, with the lead single, Where Are We Now?, made available immediately on iTunes Store. Bowie hadn't performed since 2006, and he'd rarely been seen in public. Since his bout of ill health, some people assumed he'd simply retired. The full album was released on 8th March 2013. Shooting to number one, it was the fastest-selling album of the year at that point, selling 100,000 copies in under two weeks. Bowie gave no interviews and stayed out of the public eye. He insisted there'd be no live performances to promote the album. He didn't want his life examined anymore. Whilst he hadn't completely ruled out a handful of shows, he decided ultimately to focus on making records instead. The next day was met with critical acclaim, becoming Bowie's first number one album in the UK since 1993's Black Tie White Noise. It was nominated for several awards, including the 2013 Mercury Prize and the 2014 Grammy Award and Brit Award. The Guardian's Alexis Petidris considered it to be a straightforward rock album. He described it as thought-provoking, strange and filled with great songs. The Telegraph called it a bold and beautiful, whilst the New York Times labelled it Bowie's Twilight masterpiece, and USA Today said it was a glorious homecoming. The album's cover art harks back to the youthful image of Bowie featured on his 1977 album Heroes, but it's now obliterated by a white square obscuring his face. Designed by Jonathan Barnbrook, who said it implied forgetting or obliterating the past, Bowie saw it as an original idea, subverting people's expectations. Producer Tony Visconti described the overall feel of Bowie's 24th studio album as blistering rock. It opens with the squealing guitars of the title track, which was inspired by Bowie's reading of historical books. Here I am, not quite dying, Bowie quips for those who were concerned about his health. Full of swagger, it was released as the third single off the album. The accompanying video caused some controversy in religious circles and was banned from YouTube after two hours, only to be reinstated later with an age restriction. Dirty Boys has a sleazy, sexy sax solo which harks back to the Young Americans album of 1974. Bowie said getting older had given him the scope to reflect on his own catalogue of albums. This certainly comes through on the next day. The second single was The Stars Are Out Tonight, a critique of the fake world of celebrity, with all of the stomp of his Ziggy Stardust days. Next up, Love Is Lost could almost have come from his work in the low era. Its driving beat and distinctive guitar work, 
blends brilliantly with Bowie's work on the organ. Oh, what have you done is the repeated refrain which stops dead at the end of the track. Where Are We Now is steeped in nostalgia and sees Bowie in wistful mode as he harks back to his time in Berlin in the 1970s, name-checking the Potsdamer Platz railway station. For someone who was assumed to never look back, this was quite a departure. Valentine's Day was not as romantic as the title might suggest. Bowie was troubled by a spate of school shootings in the US and here delves into a killer planning an attack. The song's title comes from the St Valentine's Day Massacre of 1929. If You Can See Me sees Bowie duet with bassist Gayland Dorsey, with the song's guitar lines inspired by jazz and reminiscent of his worth on Earthling. I'd Rather Be High has a catchy riff and the song reflects it on teenage soldiers sent to war but longing for a normal life. Boss of Me sees Bowie back in reflective mode. Who'd have ever dreamed that a small town girl like you would be the boss of me, he sings, whilst a sax solo plays out. The tempo lifts with Dancing Out in Space in a track that perhaps revisits his 1980s pop phase with an insistent and toe-tapping beat. Another anti-war song, How Does the Grass Grow, turns to the plight of soldiers, the title referring to a chant they were taught as they practised combat methods. Remember the dead, they were so great, some of them, sings Bowie. You Will Set the World on Fire turns its attention to the burgeoning careers of the artists of Greenwich Village, name-checking both Bob Dylan and Joan Byers against a pounding guitar riff-laden track. Next up, You Feel So Lonely You Could Die tackles loneliness with soaring harmonies that disguise the song's dark themes. The track has echoes of both Five Years and Rock and Roll Suicide from Bowie's back catalogue. The album closes with Heat, which sees Bowie singing in a deep, imposing voice. It's a doom-laden, chilling track to end the album, with the repeated line, My father ran the prison. Atmospheric, it casts a shadow and leaves the listener with a sense of unease. David Bowie's Black Star, his 25th studio album, was released on 8th January 2016, coinciding with his 69th birthday. It was largely recorded in secret at New York's Magic Shop and the Human Worldwide Studios with longtime co-producer Tony Visconti and a group of acclaimed local jazz musicians. It's a truly extraordinary album, arguably the greatest of his entire career. Incredibly atmospheric and thought-provoking, it's dark, adventurous, otherworldly and a suitably bold statement from one of music's greatest pioneers. It is perhaps the greatest triumph of his career, given the circumstances under which it was created. Two days after the album's release, well, fans and critics poured over his new work, calling it the best album he'd made since the 70s, perhaps his best ever. David Bowie died of liver cancer, aged 69. He'd been diagnosed 18 months earlier, but his illness hadn't been revealed to the public. It was a closely guarded secret, and outside of his family circle, only a very small handful of Bowie's closest associates even knew he was unwell. The news was received with shock, disbelief and a huge outpouring of grief, as former colleagues, casual fans and dedicated followers of his career reeled at the announcement. Impromptu street shrines and painted murals of David Bowie sprung up across the globe whilst many turned to his new album for clues. It's hard to separate Bowie's death from his work on Black Star. 
He had written about mortality previously, but the album took on an entirely new meaning given the momentous event which came at the time of its release. Bowie had always looked for new elements and musicians to translate his ideas. He was constantly evolving and his final album, Black Star, was markedly more experimental than its predecessor the next day. The first track completed for the album was Sue, or In a Season of Crime, a collaboration between Bowie and the American composer and jazz orchestra leader Maria Schneider. Released as a single in 2014 with Tis Pity She Was a Whore as its B-side, both tracks were re-recorded for inclusion on the album Black Star. It was Maria Schneider who led Bowie to jazz musician Donnie McCaslin, who provided new saxophone parts for the album recording of Tis Pity and performed on both the original and album recording of Sue. Bowie recruited the jazz quintet, led by saxophonist McCaslin, to work with him on Black Star, including drummer Mark Guilena, pianist Jason Linder, and bassist Tim Lefebvre, allowing him to fully explore a genre of music Bowie had always loved but only occasionally experimented with before. Black Star saw an incredible fusion of Bowie's craft with the music and skill of the musicians in Donnie McCaslin's band. The result was a jazz rock album that defied pigeonholing. To assume Black Star is a doom-laden and sombre affair is a mistake. It's also playful, witty, warm, experimental and surprising. Not content with ploughing his creative energy solely into making an incredible album, Bowie also fulfilled his lifelong ambition to write a Broadway musical at the same time. Directed by Ivo van Hove, it was inspired by the 1963 novel The Man Who Fell to Earth. Bowie's musical starred Michael C. Hall of Dexter fame in the central role of Thomas Jerome Newton, a role previously played by Bowie himself in the 1976 film adaptation of the novel. Bowie worked tirelessly on both the album Black Star and the musical Lazarus, whilst concealing his illness from most of the two teams he is working with. He joined the cast of Lazarus on stage at the final curtain of the opening night performance of the musical in New York towards the end of 2015, and even mooted a sequel during the post-show celebrations. The Black Star album comprises seven tracks. The opening number is so powerful it's a challenge to get past it, but listeners who delve further are rewarded for their effort. The video for Black Star the single is as epic and all-consuming as the song. The character played by Bowie with bandaged buttoned eyes is incredibly haunting creation, at times with teeth gritted in defiance. A spaceman's suit with a skeleton inside is reminiscent of Bowie's first credible character, Major Tom, and one which remained close to his heart. A device returned to from Space Oddity to Ashes to Ashes and finally in Black Star, after 50 years of looking for a home, Major Tom seems to find one and peace in Black Star. The video for the track, Lazarus, is equally powerful, perhaps more so. Again featuring Bowie's button-eyed character, the music is stark and stripped back, as Bowie sings, Look up here, I'm in heaven. I've got scars that can't be seen. I've got drama can't be stolen. Everybody knows me now. It was while shooting the video for Lazarus that David found out he was in the final stages of the disease. Tony Visconti described his performance as a man on top of his game. He said Bowie was in the zone and really feeling it. In the title track, Bowie sings, Something happened on the day he died. Spirit rose a metre and stepped aside. Somebody else took his place and bravely cried. I'm a black star. 
It's an incredibly brave album and a masterpiece marking the end of an extraordinary career. Hello, welcome back um, for the final Bowie chat. Um, you have listened to the 90s and the noughties. Um, we're now going to try and pick uh, our way through this with the voices that you've heard, Jonathan and Emma. Um, we're going to go straight over to Jonathan and I'm going to ask you a question. Um, no tin machine? No tin machine, I would say. Hey! Hey! Why? Because I mean, why? I mean, I was expressly told not to do Tim Machine. <laughs> That's they wouldn't let me wolf. do it. Yeah, That's so unfair. We, to be honest, we did when we put this together. We said we're not doing Tim Machine. Um, all right, so there was no Tim Machine. <laughs> Bowie has come back. It's black tie, no white noise. Um, is he still the mega star? from Let's Dance, uh, what's going on uh, in, his, in his life at the, that time? Um, how did this album come about? And I mean, did you like it? So he's all recently married, it's 93, and he's back with Niall Rogers from Let's Dance, so I guess was extremely successful. So maybe he's trying to recapture some of that success, some of that mainstream success, which he certainly didn't get with Tim Machine. Um, but you know, there's some artistic success maybe with Tim Machine, maybe a little bit, tiny bit, tiny bit. I think there was a, yeah, I think there was a little bit, but also I think, I mean, you're looking at a lot of artists who came through the eighties and not all of them came through the eighties well. Um, Lou Reed, uh, Iggy Pop, um, they were looking a bit tired. The Rolling Stones, like uh, a lot of those bands that came through the 80s were looking a bit weird. Uh, Bowie basically had had an, a wedding and wrote an album about it. Um, also, the, the time, like there's stuff on there about, was it Rodney King? Um, yeah, the title like track was, a, was about the LA riots or written in the aftermath of the LA riots. I don't think it's specifically about the LA riots. But it does have a slight whiff of ebony and ivory about it. Um, the Paul McCartney. Oh, that's never good. <laughs> I know. It's, it's sort of, it's cringy, I have to say, but I sort of don't mind it as a tune. It's one of my, the better ones on there, I'd say. And it's, um, okay. you know, it's not exactly sort of chock full of cracking tunes, is it really? Or even interesting experiments. It, it falls between any, any of those stools. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it's interesting for the fact that Mick Ronson's briefly back before he passed he away. Is, yes. um, but apart from that, um, and there's, again, there's some cover versions, which, are they any good this time? We've talked on previous episodes about how Bowie's cover versions are pretty bad. It's not, it's not so much that they're bad, so much as that they never really seem to come anywhere close to his, his own work. They, they, they always seem a bit superfluous. You know, there's like so on this is what I feel free. Actually, I don't remember it from the album, but it does. It, <laughs> you know, that probably pretty much sums it up. It's just Bowie doing "I Feel Free," but there's nothing. He doesn't bring anything to it. Yeah. And, but he just sends He does, does tend to like when he does covers. It's like here's an album. There's nine songs. Three of them aren't mine, and they're not as good as the ones that are mine. So it's all sort of question. 
you never get the sense that he did something really special with the cover. I don't know. I mean, contradict me if you feel that that's not true, but I've said it in an episode so far, and I'm sticking to it. I'd say later in his career, I really enjoy some of his covers, but maybe not at this stage. All right, well, we'll hold on to that. We'll we'll get to them. We will come back to them. Uh, I believe on my notes, I have some written down for... Yeah, so we'll definitely come back to some of those um, at that point. Um, it's fine. I mean, it's much better than the the, the terrible albums at the end of the 80s. Uh, Never Let Me Down was so bad that anything that came after it um, was held as a return to form. You get a lot. I've, I've looked at a lot of reviews over the past week or so, looking at, uh, listening to all these albums, and there's probably five or six reviews ago. This is the best stuff since Scary Monsters. Yeah. It seems to be the, the phrase that comes back time and time again. Um, I don't think this was. No, I, I don't think it was either. And I think, yeah, for once, the covers and his own songs are equally kind of forgettable, really. They don't really stand well, out. Well, they don't really stand out. Well, that's probably a good time to move on then. Um, now, when we were starting to put this together, the original idea, we're going to look just at the studio albums and not get distracted by any any other stuff. Um, we did briefly touch on Labyrinth in the last episode, and we're now going to take a, a slight detour to the Buddha of Suburbia, which was um, a miniseries in the early 90s in the UK, about four or five episodes. Yeah. And yeah. Jonathan, what, 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 what took your, um, I mean, it was a commercial failure, right? I mean, it didn't really even chart. I, I've said this a lot in the last few episodes. I've been horrendously wrong most times, but I'm pretty convinced this one was a bit of a flop. Jonathan. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, um, <laughs> it was largely experimental and sort of instrumental with bits of cut up um vocal and things like that but it's got like at least three really good songs on the title track is a really good song the Buddha of suburbia dead against it which he tried to record throughout the 90s he tried to stick that on other albums like earthling i think he tried to record it we record it for that and never did so it remains just on there and and the final track which he puts on one outside he ends that with it the next album but it there's quite a lot of parallels between those two i think one outside and suburbia just the experimentation which he really continues into one outside but it all starts here and apparently it took him six days to write and record the Buddha of Suburbia I mean it sounds like it oh. to be fair but it um yeah quick, quick yeah, I, think, I, I think that's it I mean maybe he was freed up a little bit from uh, the pressure of having to do a Bowie album you know this yeah. is it, it's a Bowie album but it's not a Bowie album uh, Emma did you have time to listen to the Buddha of Suburbia I yeah, I certainly did. I certainly did. Um, I love the book. Love the book. <laughs> but no, I did. I did. I quite enjoyed it actually. Um, I, I read that it, it did have some fans. Um, Mark Cooper of the Guardian said it was his best album for twenty five years. Right. What was twenty five years? Okay. So there you go. Nineteen seventy. Right. So we're talking what? Hunky Dory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's basically his best album since. David Bowie, David Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't actually like David Bowie, does he? <laughs> he was obviously a big fan. He was obviously a big fan. But, um, but am I right in thinking some of the music, or quite a lot of the music on it, didn't actually feature in the film? 
Yeah, Why none of it did. I don't remember watching it. None of it did. I don't remember the Bowie thing. Besides none of the, it did. the title oh, wow. track that was on the outro, even the intro music, it starts. So we, we watched a little bit of it. The first episode one, scene one, is Kooks at the very beginning. But oh, yeah, really? besides that, the Budra Suburbia song only features on the outro. Mm. It's like one of those movie soundtracks where all the songs are on the final credits, uh, mm. just back to back to back. They're not actually in in the film uh, uh, at all. Um, one thing mm. I, I found about um, uh, this period, um, unlike say the Beatles or so, Bowie started to take control of his own back catalogue around this point. He owned everything, uh, and so he was he had a hand in. Um, the, like the sound and vision box set, uh, re-releasing everything with with appropriate artwork and B sides, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I mean, is this just an, is this a perfect example? Do you think of, of Bowie being getting back in control of his career rather than some of the missteps he took in the eighties? Um, well, he's certainly doing yeah. what he wants to do. I don't think it's quite an odd move. It's not the move of someone who's craving success like I suppose he was in the 80s or trying to find some form this is this is Bowie cutting loose and just really trying things I mean okay. it's, in many ways that that it seems very typical of him throughout his career to me that he he, he was never shied away from a challenge did he? he he was always willing to try something different um just sure. give it a go and other people didn't like it fair enough you know he was already moving on to the next project He'd become quite safe in the 80s in comparison to this. I suppose Tim Machine was, was doing that, but the 80s were quite a sort of safe, not rock the boat kind of time for Bowie, I think. Well, talking about the experimentation, etc. cetera, um, Bowie's early, most experimental period had, had one factor that was quite uh, common, and that was Brian Eno. Um, and moving on to the next album, Eno's back, right? Yay! At last. Yay! <laughs> um, and you, even when you look at the track list, you can tell. Oh, this is not just the nine, nine, ten songs. There's little bits and, and whatnot. I mean, and how was this done? I, I heard. I heard it was all written in the studio and just basically improvised, and they just they, they went with it. Uh, Jonathan, I mean, tell us a bit about the next album. Yeah, it was. It was all from improvisations in the studio and there was a hell of a lot of material apparently, but I think you get that with excessive um, improvisation. And um, he was also cutting up lyrics, which I don't think he'd done for a while, but I think he started that in the late seventies, actually earlier than that he was doing that, I think. But this time he was using his, his Macintosh computer, all the rage back then in 95 and using a, a piece of software called the verbicizer, into which he fed wait, lyrics. Wait, the verbicizer. The yeah. verbicizer. Wow. If only we had that technology now, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't even know what that would have done. <laughs> okay, I mean, he, at, least, at least with this album, he's doing something interesting. Whether or not um, it's everyone's cup of tea, it's definitely something interesting again. Uh, we talked in the last episode about how the 80s ended up basically with him dressed as an accountant singing about his, his personal assistant. Now he's got Eno back. He's, he's doing something good. Well, 
interesting. It might come across occasionally like pretentious cyber wank. Um, what was the full title of the album? It was the Nathan Adler Diaries, A Hypercycle. Yeah. I, I, I mean, <laughs> could you think of a more 90s uh, <laughs> thing in the world? Oh, yeah, yeah. cyber. We'll put cyber in it. Um, Emma, what did, what did this do for you? I mean, it's interesting at least, right? Definitely. I mean, it's very obvious that Brian Eno's back, that's for sure. Um, I never really liked Hello Space Boy at the time, but but I have got quite a soft spot for it now, I have to say. Um, and I spotted that there's some jazz, um, which obviously we're going to see more of. So um, a small plot of land is definitely on a jazz tip. Um, but it's a much darker sound, which which I actually prefer. I, actually prefer. I definitely prefer the last two albums. Um, and um, one thing I wasn't so keen on was the spooky voices. So the, the Baby Grace, the horrid cassette, and um, Ramona Stone is properly scary. <laughs> Which is not necessarily what you want from an album, to, like, to be spooked. No, they kind of, um, yeah, yeah. It, it's a little bit distracting maybe, but... Um, it sounds like they're having fun with it anyway. They're, they're certainly experimenting and having fun and can't really argue with that. There's a strange facet to Bowie when you listen to all his records back to back where you, you start to, and you, if you start to focus on the lyrics and what the song's are about, which to be honest, when I think of Bowie, I don't notice this so much, is there's this idea of Bowie and his image of himself as the sci-fi writer. Like he fancies himself as J.G. Ballard or William Burroughs or something. And he keeps sort of doing these semi-sci-fi concept albums, of which this was one, I think. And yet, to be honest, at his best, you don't you, you don't want that. I mean, okay, Ziggy was successful, Bowie. I mean, yeah, he literally became he literally became a, a, but, a megastar with an invented <laughs> space. And, and that works, I guess. But I guess that works. I, I guess because when you when you look under the surface of it, he seems to be trying to do all this kind of dystopian narrative stuff. But when Bowie's successful in his sci-fi sort of ventures, it's actually when it's anything but dystopian. Ziggy was pure utopian. It, it was about joy and, and all the kind of transgressive stuff. But he kind of, he kind of keeps trying to explore more kind of dystopian sci-fi. And um, I don't really, I don't necessarily have a problem with it. I think for the most part, it's just this thing that you're aware he's trying to do and never really seems to be fully successful. I don't think he ever wrote his great sci-fi dystopian album that he seemed to be grasping for a lot of his works about characters though isn't it and um well you've certainly got plenty of characters here even if they are dystopian but um that is something he, he does well throughout his career really but there was a, there the was a concept here if you want to hear it yes please the actual concept i wrote it down <laughs> what was the, the actual <laughs> premise the, it's the diary of investigator Nathan Adler investigating the ritual murder of 14-year-old baby Grace Blue, um, who was okay. murdered for art. It was a murder as art. She might get that from the, the album. I, she might I, get that from the, the album. I go back to my original comment, occasionally pretentious cyber wank. Um, this album sort of drifts into... <laughs> borderline QAnon stuff, that is. Than... <laughs> surely, surely. That's not the first time QAnon has been mentioned on, the, on one of our Bowie podcasts. So there's a, there is a QAnon theme. Um, so we talked about 
his sci-fi sci influences. Um, and then the next album is, is called Earthling. Um, and I mean, a little, bit, a little bit of it sounds like he released a normal rock album and then somebody did some drum and bass mixes uh, on the B side of an EP. Um, some of them sort of work, some of them don't. Little Wonder, absolutely great track. Um, the rest of it, I don't know. I mean, John, Jonathan, I mean, it, the rest of it trails off for me a bit. I mean, Earthling? <laughs> yeah, no, mm. I'm the same with this one. It's not terrible, but it isn't, isn't amazing. Um, it tries to do sort of things, doesn't it? It tries for the drum and bass thing. And it, it, it tries for industrial but he, he never quite gets any of these things right, really, with the big guitars and all this stuff. One thing I will say, though, um, Little Wonder was um, written about each of Snow White's seven dwarves. Yeah, I read that. What? And he wow. ran out like a line. <laughs> and apparently he even makes up his own dwarves as well. He's not, not satisfied with the seven. He oh, has to come up my with God. Dwarves. Is that why it's called Little Wonder? <laughs> I mean, he's literally... Go, oh, that's a bit. You think, right? When, nice you look, when you look too closely at David Bowie lyrics, it kind of spoils it. Don't, just, don't go there. I just have this image of him like bending up because he was quite a tall guy, bending over the. the <laughs> uh, 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 going, you little wonder, you. And I'm patting him <laughs> on the head. <laughs> oh, Emma. And before we have that image of. Um, a uh, little wonder being about the seven dwarves. Um, how did Bowie's uh, experience in drum, bass and industrial uh, work for you? Um, I mean, I think I'd say it does start with the best track for me, which, which is Little Wonder. Um, I quite like Dead Man Walking as well. Um, seven Years in Tibet does feel like a, a long track. Um, but in many, in many ways, I thought it was great to hear him experimenting again in a different way, different way to the previous album. But one thing that slightly puzzled me was um, that I noticed the producer credits. It's co-produced by Reed Grabels and uh, Mark Platty. And given that they're both guitarists, it, it, it just doesn't really come across as um, a guitar album in many ways. I mean, obviously, with all the jungle and drum and bass going on. So that just seemed a bit surprising. Yeah, Reese Gabriels doesn't strike me as your go-to producer for a drum and bass album. Absolutely. Well, maybe he had nothing else to do on the album. <laughs> yeah. um, well, talking of talking of Gabriels, um, the next week. album was his last one, the last we hear of him. Uh, Jonathan, on your on your uh, curation, um, you mentioned that actually it's it's Gabriels who who dumps Bowie. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. How? What? What was the beef? I think they recorded a lot of a lot of material for the um, the computer game, the Nomad Soul Omicron, the Nomad Soul, um, which sounds incredible. Which I think Bowie is in. He's actually in the game. He features. Which is, he is. Yeah. Uh, it actually, I was actually up watching TV on Sunday morning, and they were talking about uh, Stormzy being in a video game, and then they played a clip of David Bowie's one, and it is everything you imagine. It's David Bowie's face, bad computer graphics around it, around it and him going, hello, player. And it's just, yep, it, it's, <laughs> just picture it. Um, so they, re they recorded some songs for this 
computer game whose title I already cannot pronounce. Um, but how did that mean that they fell out? Because Bowie didn't really include the, the best work on here for my money. It became a very bland, boring album when you listen to it in the end. He, he just let, they left all the good stuff. There's a couple of songs appear on a B-side to Thursday's Child. We all go through and no one calls, I think. And they're really good. I mean, they're good in a kind of outside way. If you like those weird bits of outside, the spooky, the spooky little tunes of outside, not the really experimental stuff or the, or the kind of voice stuff, just the spooky little songs. They're really, really nice, those two. And apparently it's because one of the main reasons is they, they weren't included on the album. Reeves just didn't, didn't have that at all and up sticks. I don't know how true that is. Does that sound? It is. Does that sound? I did read somewhere about how they were starting to, uh, Gabriel's said something afterwards about how Bowie just didn't seem to be listening to him anymore uh, and wanted to bring in a different bass player and I, whatnot. I read that he wanted to do, a uh, Bowie wanted to do a collaboration with TLC or somebody. Yes, having it, he kind of oh, walked away, and yeah. that just sounds like such an incredibly like up himself thing to to quit over. Because you figure, if he wants to do a collaboration with TLC, you let him. Yeah, that yeah. we might have missed out on something amazing right there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing is, it's like your your guitarist who's worked with him for ten years. Yeah, but that's David Bowie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, that, you know, Reece, it Reece was Gabriel probably a long time though, wasn't Bowie it? Album. It was probably long enough for a decade or so. One thing about yeah, this yeah, album no. they did do, though, it's like the first album to be available for download. Yeah. Before its physical release. Yeah, I mean, again, can not only taking control of the actual financial side and uh, of Bowie, you know, and, um, I think later on he put himself on the stock market or something, but Bowie did Bowie. imaginative things outside the actual music. Um, and being at the forefront of downloadable uh, tracks in the 90s um, is, is one of them. Although, for me, this is the, the whole thing just sounds really dated. We've talked about in previous pods about some Bowie albums are timeless. Um, Emma, for me, listening to this, I can go, yeah, I know exactly when this was recorded. Um, how, did that, how, how did you find it? Um. It feels a bit pedestrian by comparison to the last two albums, I'd definitely say. It's quite chilled, isn't it? It's quite chilled. I can't really get excited about it. Um, I don't think it's really an album that grabs the listener. Um, but I think, it, I think it's got some gentle charms. I quite like Survive. Um, and I also I noticed it got to number five in the album charts in the UK. It didn't do so well in the US, but um, I was quite surprised to see that. Hmm. Yeah, and also the cover, I'm just looking at the cover. The cover actually looks like it could have been a TLC cover. Um, <laughs> sort of 90s font and all dressed in white. Well, that was the 90s. and it, There were some good moments in there. And then obviously it sort of limped towards the end. Um, Bo was still, I think, trying to move on to the next thing all the time at this point. And maybe had seemed to be running out of steam a little bit. I think even NME magazine uh, and the, the quality of music journalism that it is uh, held up 
did an article about how David Bowie was this embarrassing relic from the past. That he, he left the 90s um, not fully recovered from, well, the 80s, I guess, which moves us um, nicely into heathen. Uh, Emma, this was, this was Bowie's first new millennium. Um, this was post, post 9-11. Yeah, so this is this, 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 there's a new it's a new world and is it a new Bowie, Emma? Um, I'd say probably, possibly yes. Um, it's certainly considered a return to form, um, and it sees him working again with Tony Visconti. Um, a lot of the tracks um, actually started well, not a lot. Sorry, some of the tracks started life on Toy, which was an album that was never actually released. So that was quite interesting. And that, that album was quite a lot about looking back. Mm. But um, Virgin clearly didn't want to release it. And there was talk of scheduling problems and things like that. Um, but whatever the excuse was, they didn't actually re release it. So Bowie left. He left the label. Um, but Columbia, Columbia took him on. And he was able to release Heathen under his own ISO label instead. Um, and you are left wondering whether Virgin might have regretted that because obviously it was hugely successful for him and um, yeah, did, did very well and saw him sort of move in a new direction. Um, and what, and yeah. what direction was that? Um, I mean, he, he just seems to be performing it with, with a great confidence. Um, it's a really cohesive album. It really flows. Every track on the album for me works really. Um, some of the tracks maybe look back slightly, but he's also looking forward. And there are actually three covers on this album, but I would say that all of them are great. I, I mean, personally, I, I, I really like them. He does, he does the Pixies cover, he does Cactus, he does I've Been Waiting For You from Neil Young. Um, and they're both bands um, or artists that he covered with Tim Machine um, in live shows. So, so he comes back to them. And then there's also the cover for um, the I Took a Trip on a Gemini Spaceship cover actually relates to his Ziggy Stardust character in that the person who wrote that, his name is Legendary Stardust Cowboy. And he wrote, wrote the song back in the 60s. But um, when Bowie found out that he'd fallen on hard times, he actually decided to put this track on the album so that he would get royalties from it. And it's a very, very different version, very different version, because I think it's quite out there, the original. Um, but, but all of the original tracks on the album um, are fantastic, I'd say. Um, there's Slow Burn, there's Sunday. The first track, Sunday, is really haunting, another worldly. Um, and several of the tracks, strangely, feel like they could have been written because of what happened in New York, because of the 9-11 attacks. But in actual fact, most of the album had been written before that happened. So and I think even Bowie turned around afterward and said it was a bit spooky. Um, a little bit like maybe some of Nick Cave's recent work where he composed it before events sort of overtook the album in a way. Um, mm. So maybe it's a little bit similar to that, but um, yeah. Um, Nick, you, you sort of leaned forward like you were about to say something. Well, no, it was just interesting the point about the legendary Stardust Cowboy and how he covered him simply because he'd heard that he'd um, probably not solely because he'd heard that he'd fallen hard times. But um, the same thing came up during the eighties that he did put a bunch of Iggy covers on an album 
simply because he'd heard that, you know, that, or he knew that Iggy was uh, struggling a bit. There's an interesting way of using his uh, star power in a way to kind of help out people who are, yeah. just need a little bit of a boost. I, I think that's it. I mean, I think, I mean, we've talked before about how there's some terrible cover versions in the past. I, I totally agree with them that I think that the ones on this finally start to work. Um, do you think, I mean, we've talked about how he uses cover versions to show his influences, to talk about his influences. Um, Jonathan, um, do you think there's also an argument that he uses cover versions to sort of try and stay relevant, um, doing things bands like the Pixies um, to show, look, oh, look, I'm not just the guy who liked the stuff in the 60s. Um, I also like this stuff. Yeah, he's still looking back to Tim Machine there, actually, isn't he? Because they were influenced by the Pixies. Did they actually do this one? Did they cover Cactus? But I know that it's, it, they were very influenced. By it. He's still there. He's still in Tim Machine. That's where we are. That's where I think we he are. covered Debaser, didn't they? I think I think Tim Machine used to cover Debaser, but he's clearly a fan. Uh, um, so, Jonathan, yeah. I mean, in general, I mean, what did you think about this album? Well, I, I remember buying this when it came out, and I remember being really surprised, pleasantly surprised, because I thought Earthling and Hours were, were pretty weak albums. So this had some genuine classics for me that I really love, like Everyone Says Hi, I think he's just fantastic. It's a great song. I think it's all very nice and middle-aged. What, what I would say about this album, what he's doing here is, he's doing everything that he did on Hours, but doing it really well. And it, it's however middle-aged and back-looking-y ours is, good word there, um, he then does that and looks to the future, but he, it just all sounds so good now. He seems more happy with himself, maybe, and he can be middle-aged and still be good. I think that's a very good point, actually. I mean, he kept trying to move on to different things, and he does feel like he's finally happy just being Bowie. Um, and I think it's something that's echoed on the next album, Reality, as well. I think they're pretty much um, a pair that go together, like you would have uh, some of the some of the Berlin albums that obviously this one came after this one. And I think Heathen and Reality are pretty much a Bowie who's like who stopped being a comedian, and now he's just Bowie, and everything's just sort of all right. Nothing, there's no major highs, there's no dramatic failures. Everything's just sort of, yeah. I mean, Emma, well, where was reality, apart from having another terrible cover? Uh, where was reality for you? Well, I, I, originally, I, I found Heathen maybe a little bit more immediate, but reality is, is a real grower. And um, I, I really love the album, actually. Um, but it just, it took a little while to click. Um, but Bowie started working on it literally immediately when he finished Heathen. So, so it comes out within a year of, of Heathen. I mean, it's incredible, really. He was obviously just, you know, completely in the vein and just, just you know, he, he was, he was um, you know, unstoppable in many ways and just, just went straight into it. Um, and it starts with Nicola Star, which is... People um, have suggested maybe that alludes to 9-11 as well. Um, there's some lines in there which are, are totally relevant. Um, but um, it, it sort of looks back again. There's the, you, that's something that seems to creep in now. There's, you know, he's looking back, but he's also looking forward. 
So um, that's definitely seems to be a theme. But um, there's another couple of um, covers as well. There's um, Jonathan Richardson's Pablo Picasso, which is a really punchy cover. Um, there's, it's not actually a cover, Dave, um, but, but it's definitely a nod to Ray Davis, who's, who's somebody that he greatly admires. Um, and... Um, um, but I think that I think that is the thing. I mean, he's he's got comfortable sort of looking back. Um, this also seemed to be the first album um, in a long time that got really good reviews. Not just the occasional person going, "This is the best since Ziggy Stardust," mm. but generally across the board. Um, Nick, where are you? How, how are you with um, middle-aged, comfortable Bowie? <laughs> Nick. Oh, sorry. I completely miss that you addressed me there. <laughs> I'm I'm totally fine with middle-aged, comfortable Bowie. Um, I do agree that he, it seems to be that the 21st century marks a point where he kind of yeah he settled down. He found a kind of he, he was comfortable with himself in a good way. Um, and if anything, it does sound most like a kind of 21st century version of the late 70s Bowie, which I'm fine with because that's the best bit. And, and, and is there a thing of basically the '90s was a bit of Jesus? Check out embarrassing granddad with his leather trousers. He hasn't recorded anything after whatever the last one in the '90s was. Hours, uh, you know, you could imagine him just sort of fading away, and then people would, you know, have their kind of Bowie retrospectives where they talk about how great the early stuff was. But you know, he, he had that kind of comeback, and his, his last few albums, I think, are all pretty strong. Jonathan, I mean, where, where I mean, obviously you you had to work your way through some of the dirt in the nineties. Um, how I mean, we've looked we've looked at Heathen now, obviously with reality. Um, where are you on on comfy comfy old Bowie? Yeah, I mean, it, I suppose it should be bad because it should be the antithesis of what Bowie's all about: being experimental, trying different things. But somehow it somehow it works and it, it shouldn't do. And I guess that makes it even even better in a way because it's the opposite to what he always said he would do and said he did. So I think, you know, it's remarkable really, actually. These albums are good. Just just to say that the other cover on the album is George Harrison's um Try Some Bison. Um, which I think again is 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 really effective. It works really, really well. But um, you just mentioned the sort of maybe slightly cringy 90s Bowie. Um, and he sort of almost, well, probably not referring to himself, but he sort of always addresses that would never get old. Um, it sort of uh, covers the cliche of a rock star who, who, who just doesn't want to age really, you know. So I don't know. It's almost like maybe he's, maybe he's thought about, you know, a new direction and... Um, and off he's gone on that, in that direction. But I, I definitely say Heathen had, had really strong reviews as well. Um, but yeah, certainly reality is, is a really strong follow-up. And then, I mean, it, it looked like Bowie was back and he was releasing an album a year. And um, then he had a heart attack, I think, when he was touring in Germany. Um, and then it sort of just sort of disappeared for 10 years and then came back like storming with, with the next day, which I think was, I think it was up for the Mercury Prize. Is that right, Emma? It did. It got nominated for several awards, um, and it and it came 
it came after a seven-year break. Um, so it, it was all um, recorded under, you know, a shroud of secrecy. It even had a code name, the album. Um, so I think some people did assume that he, he'd sort of given up, potentially, or, or maybe still wasn't quite well. Um, but then he came back with this and, and um, it, it was, again, hugely successful for him. I mean, he's having a, a great stretch. Um, it was the fastest selling album of the year at the time and um it was nominated for several awards and it's it's full of really strong songs um and um and again manages to look back and forward at the same time i think one thing i noticed from this is i couldn't i couldn't pick the style um sometimes you go well this is a glam rock bowie this is an, a, a drum and bass bowie this is this is the accountant period um this one I could I couldn't place it on any on any particular style, even uh, the ones that had come earlier on in that decade. He, he does seem to sort of um, reference lots of points in his career, really, on this album. That, that's that's definitely something that he does. Um, I'm He's really effectively scary monsters here for me in quite a lot of ways. It's that scary monsters vibe, the late seventies, early eighties. Yeah, um, and I think the thing about this one, I think they, I think he's trying that a little bit in the last two, but I think they really pull it off in this one. I'm not, I'm not saying the songs are as strong as that period, but it sounds great. The, the playing is really good. Instrumentation's really good. It's got that, that feel to it. It's really good. Yeah. Um, and even though with the cover, the cover was basically what it's hero. It's the cover of heroes, but with a big white square on it. So everything mm -hmm. is being sort of referenced back. Um, and I can't imagine many other artists could pull that off. I mean, I think it's great. I love it as a cover, but I, who else could do that? Yeah, it's almost, yeah. I mean, I, an iconic cover, shove a white square in front with the, the title of the album in a fairly plain font. It's good, isn't it? It's Perfect. good. Um, I mean, I don't know where the conversation is going to go in a minute after I say this. Um, I think Next Day was a, a fantastic album. I also think it was his last good album. Um, uh, <laughs> as we move into Blackstar, and there are stunned faces on this Zoom call, I'm, I'm guessing Jonathan would also have a stunned face if his camera was turned on. Um, and I'm not saying this to be a, a deliberate dick about this. Um, Blackstar, I mean, yeah, it was it's the jazz album. I don't have a problem with jazz. Um, it's a fine album. Um, but is there an argument that can be had that people hold up Black Star because it came out the weekend of Bowie's death? Um, if we decouple them as things, is Black Star actually good? I mean, the next day was a great album. And then we've got Black Star, which came out on what? And then two days later, I think. Yeah. Is that correct? Bowie, Bowie yeah, passed away. Um, Am I, am I a philistine? Do I have tin ears? Am I wrong, Emma? The last one. Um, I mean, I, I think it's an incredible piece of work. Um, and I, I mean, actually, as the album was released a couple of days before he actually did pass away, people were already raving about it. But I think people certainly looked at it in a in a very different way after that event because it's it's impossible not to, especially when you know what he was going through while it was being recorded. And um, 
I mean, he people uh, Donny um, Donny McCausland, who who recorded with him, said he was so committed and so energetic and in great spirits through the recording. Um, so you know, it's just something that he absolutely put his heart and soul into, and. I can only really commend him for doing something a bit different with that album because it, it, it is quite different really to anything else that he's done. Um, I, I know he did say earlier in his career that, that people either really accepted what he did or they pushed it away. And he just said, I guess that's what I am. And, um, you know, I'm sure he'd forgive you for not enjoying it, but um, there's, <laughs> if I dare say that, but, um, but no, I, I just think it, I think it's incredible, but I do think, I mean, I do think getting past the first track and going on through the album, it, the first track just blows me away every time. So I'm almost tempted to stop there sometimes, but it, 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 I think, you know, it needs time. You need to spend time with it really. And in truth, when it first came out, I listened to it once and then I just couldn't listen to it again for such a long time. Um, so I feel like I, I want to give it more time now. Um, but at the time, like maybe a lot of people, I felt like I couldn't really. Yeah. Mm. Um, I, I felt like I couldn't listen to it again, but for totally different reasons. <laughs> um, Jonathan, they say that everybody gets to a point in their life where suddenly we decide that jazz is fine. Um, was this Bowie's? <laughs> I think it was. I think it was. I remember, actually, I remember hearing it before his death and before we found out he was dead. So I remember my feelings on it before that point. And then my feelings were, oh, he's doing outside again. Because of sort of right. jazz dark influence on that. So I, I was totally in that frame of mind before it suddenly became an incredibly sad album. For me, it was kind of outside part two. And then it became this really sad, sad, sad thing. So it's strange, really, but I, I remember my feelings on it. I don't find I think, it a bad album at all. That, that, I think one of the things that makes it a remarkable album is that it feels like, and again, I, you totally can't uncouple it from the knowledge of his death. You just can't. Yeah. But I think um, mm. when you listen to it, it's the sound of somebody who is aware that they're dying and is just kind of, in a way, quite reconciled with that. In, 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 a, in a way that's actually very heartening. It's not a sad album at all. I mean, I think in yeah, some sure. ways, because because death isn't something anybody really well, talks about, um, it, it, it's sort of typical of Bowie to sort of push you to to, to sort of really explore that. And um, you know, he he never he never really wants to feel safe, and he just always wants to be just outside of his comfort zone. And and I think that comes across in this last piece of work as well, really. It's great yeah. that he went back to that because he really was doing the safe thing for like three or four albums before that, whatever it was, he really had gone into safe Bowie. And so he'd gone sort of, then he had his final chance to make something. It was back to that Bowie and he pulls it off, which is good. good. Um, yeah, I, I, I thought I would be the lone voice of, of slight dissent on this. And and I'm well aware there are, there are some albums that I probably should get. And, <laughs> and this is one I just haven't found to be I don't know. I don't know. Um, so we've gone through quite a lot. Um, we've covered almost 20 years in this in this episode uh, alone. Um, I want to talk a little bit about legacy. Um, some artists 
truly can be said to have a, a long lasting legacy. Uh, some people's legacy disappears, gets tarnished. Uh, some people tarnish their own legacy during their career, Morrissey, I'm looking at you. Um, whereas Bowie seemed to have a legacy, lose a legacy, got a legacy back, and then in his death has become something totally different. I mean, not many artists break hearts when they die. I mean, Nick, what is Bowie's legacy? Whew, that's, that's, you've, you've gone for an example. Three words. Point <laughs> <laughs> three words, I can do that. Bowie's <laughs> legacy is, I've run out, sorry. That words. Use a verbicizer. <laughs> Oh man, I don't know. That's that's too hard. Go and ask someone else. I mean, for, for everyone, I mean, do we think? I mean, what? Who, who is influenced by Bowie? I mean, everybody. But can we can we hear Bowie in artists, or is the influence slightly less obvious? Especially artists who very much want to be Bowie and very much want to sound like certain periods of Bowie. But there's certainly there's got to be a lot more to it than that. Um, I mean, he's he, he's an icon. And when you talk about tarnishing his legacy, I mean, I, I even think at his lowest points, his 70s iconic uh, sort of the, the version of Bowie that existed from then was never really tarnished. That, that kind of went on, you know, without any, didn't really matter what he did later on, unless he had gone full Morrissey, of course, that would have made it more uncomfortable. Well, to be honest, he did get, he got through cocaine and fascism That's uh, true. Without, without tarnishing it at that point. Um, but is there a, is there a thing about how because he had such good so, so many good albums in the early days he was knocking out classics and then compared to them the 70s and the 80s and the 90s you've got well this is amazing why can't you do this anymore it's not like oh here's a, this album's fine it's we want we want the, we want the old bowie back I, um, I don't I think I'd say the challenge for him was, was it was not to keep revisiting the same things that he'd done before, you know, um, and to try and express things in a different way. And he, and he loved to mix things up and he was constantly evolving all the way through his career. And I'm sure what he's passed on to many artists is, is just his fearless approach, um, you know, to music, to life, to, even to death with Black Star. Um, you know, you could never really second guess him, and and that's the way he wanted it, really. You never knew what was, what he, what he was going to do next. You never knew, did you? But you know. Yeah. But no, I think that's it, and I think I I think he, I know he didn't at any point really damage his legacy, but I yeah. think as we alluded to earlier, if his last album had been at the end of the nineties, and that's what we were looking back at. Yeah, those albums were maybe not a good bookend to his career. Whereas he did seem to, at least throughout his last four albums, get comfortable in himself and release things that were interesting and of note, uh, shall we say. Um, so, a couple of questions. Number one, favourite Bowie albums. Um, I've, Nick, you've listened to everything again now. Are you gonna say Black Star just to just to? <laughs> We're gonna, but now now you put it like that, maybe I should. No, it's it's still Station to Station. I love that album. Uh, close uh, followed by Low. That's my that's my Bowie period. Uh, okay, um, Jonathan. Yeah, I suppose I've settled on it being um, 
scary monsters over the last few years and that's kind of how it's remained it's changed throughout my life but i've settled on that one i think emma so emma um, and yours um i'd say probably um the rise and fall of ziggy stardust and the spiders from mars and station to station are two of my favorites definitely but there's just so much to pick from isn't there there really is and um i i think you can have different albums for different moods yeah, absolutely um okay so if if you dear listener are still with us and hopefully obviously you are um we have <laughs> compressed um nearly 30 30 albums into three episodes of podcast uh is it 30 albums nick or have we just invented that number it's in that ballpark i mean yeah. we've done about 10 albums an episode yeah, sounds about sounds about that. I mean, I've listened to so much Bowie in, in in the last week or so that my head's sort of exploding. But it has been a fascinating um, journey. Glad we split it into three episodes rather than the original two that was planned. Because, I mean, yeah, everything would have been crazy, crazy, crazy. Um, so we talked a bit about legacy. We're going to wrap up in a second. Um. I'm not even going to ask Nick anymore because if you've been listening to the last two episodes, you'll realise that I have been getting or trying to get all of our contributors to to do their best or worst Bowie impression. I'm ready uh, now. I'm, I'm ready. I'm going to do it. What? Oh, we're, we're coming back to you at the end. Jonathan. No, I'm, I'm joking. Piss off. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan, do you have a Bowie? Well, I I was going to do Little Wonder, but you did Little Wonder really well, and I don't think I don't know if you remember. Do that. it, do it, do it, do it, do it. You did actually do Little <laughs> Wonder early on, so I feel I should have a last minute last minute change. Off camera, it'll be easier. Okay, Are you, no. Okay, you doing it? No, I'm going. I'm going. Oh, it's coming then. It was coming. You don't rush me. <laughs> <laughs> he's actually literally giving birth to David no. Bowie. I've got a little Bowie in there. We're all glad he's coming. I'm gonna I'm gonna robot <laughs> just at that point. I'm gonna verbalize as this comes out. Oh. You little wonder you. <laughs> yes, that was worth the wait. Fantastic. Yeah, you can leave all the I know how to build it up. The drama. The drama. <laughs> um just drama. I mean I mean just for the actual just to explain to the podcast, um if if this doesn't seem like there was a long build-up to that, there was about eight minutes of, of just waiting around for Jonathan to do a run-up into that. <laughs> Emma, do you have a Bowie? Even if it's just saying the name David Bowie in a David Bowie accent. Larry the Lamb sort of voice. I don't think I can follow that, to be honest. I think I'm just going to leave it there. That was brilliant. It's brilliant. Okay, so... Um, I mean, I want to thank everybody from all the pods um, that we've gone through. Uh, there was pod one with, with Lyle, Emily and Ben. There was episode two with Steve and Zoe. And obviously there's this episode with Emma. Emma, thank you very much uh, for all your hard work and for joining us on this. And Jonathan, again, thank you very much. Um, Nick, it's been emotional. <laughs> absolutely um, um i'd like to say what will be on the next episode but at this moment we've got about four or five currently in planning stages we don't know which one will be out next um obviously you'll find us on beat.rehab slash temp fans 
Um, we might be changing the format in relation to the Spotify version of the podcast in uh, for the next episode, but that's next episode. Um, go and listen to some David Bowie. I might listen to Black Star again and and see if I'm right or wrong. Jonathan, thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Great. Emma, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Nick, I'll oh, see you next time. <laughs> okay, bye. Bye. Oh, the music now is also Jonathan's as well. Despite his tireless efforts editing these podcasts together, I'm pretty sure it's safe to assume that even Ewan doesn't listen to this bit, right? So, if I was going to do a Bowie impersonation, this would be the place to sneak it in, where nobody will hear it. It probably won't happen though, because I've got more important business to attend to, thanking our Bowie Part 3 contributors Emma McDermott and Jonathan Fisher. As mentioned, Jonathan also created the Temporary Fandoms theme music you'll have heard at intervals through this recording. It's good, isn't it? Thanks, Jonathan, and although we've already established he won't hear it, thanks to my co-host Ewan. That's Bowie done and dusted over three episodes. I hope you enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun to make, and while we were doing so, we were also thinking ahead to what's next. We've got some really exciting episodes coming up with some very special contributors who we can't wait to tell you about. So, to make sure you don't miss those, subscribe to us, like us, join our Facebook group, all of that gubbins. I'm Nick Hilditch, and... I'm a black star. I'm a black star. I'm not a gangster.